Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and e-books online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Have you been researching and learning about regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building for a while, but are still a bit unsure of where to start? Are you new to these topics and feeling overwhelmed about the sheer scope of information and knowledge that's out there to be absorbed? Are you a seasoned professional in the field looking to expand your experience and expertise with other professionals who are pushing the boundaries of regenerative projects? Well, you're in luck. Here at Abundant Edge, we have just what you need to take the next essential steps towards putting the information from these podcasts, interviews, books, and articles into action. We offer courses for beginners, intermediates, and even seasoned professionals to learn from successful regenerative business owners, farmers, builders, and other artisans who are keen to share their knowledge. Our teachers and facilitators have been working and experimenting tirelessly to provide the most up-to-date information available to help you put your skills and efforts to use in regenerating the planet and transforming the global economy into one that abandons the outdated model of consumption and destruction into one of health, stewardship, cooperation, and abundance. Come and get your hands dirty. You can get a full list of courses and trainings as well as volunteer opportunities now at AbundantEdge.com. We're looking forward to seeing you here. All right, thank you guys so much for joining us again on another Regenerative Roundtable. I'm joined here with one of our usual suspects, Neil Haggerty. Hey, Oliver. (laughs) He's seen me all day today already and is clearly over it. And uh, (laughs) So excited about it. (laughs) And we're here with one of our good friends from the next community over in San Marcos, Tim Rear. Hi there, good afternoon. And uh, today we're going to be talking about some new subjects that we haven't touched on yet, especially the coffee industry here in Guatemala. But before we get too much into those topics, I want to give a shout out to a friend of the show who sent us a really kind message and I just wanted to read it here for everybody. Greg Kale wrote in. Hello there, I just wanted to tell you guys how much I enjoy your podcast. It is so great to hear positive, hopeful content on environmental issues. It's easy to get overwhelmed and feel disempowered by the news and politics, so sources like yours are a great counterweight. I especially love the regenerative roundtables. Hearing differing opinions on the merit of techniques and their trade-offs is fantastic and really unique. Okay, uh, it has me cheering for uh, the farm, and I hope it all goes well and your goats do great. From Greg Kale. So thank you so much, Greg. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Lovely message. And so now we're going to jump into talking about some of the projects that we've been working on in the past weeks uh, since you heard from us last. So, Neil, do you want to tell us about what's been going on here on the farm development? Uh, yeah, sure, Oliver. I guess um, I've been focusing a lot on on fertility, actually. Um, so trying to put in systems that are easy to manage and kind of like our plan to make the garden just become very fertile for like a, a you know cut down i guess increase impact and cut down work but so what i mean by that is like have a bunch of systems in place that make the work put into the garden highly beneficial because you know i don't have time to be in the garden all of the time um so you know we planted a corn system a milpa system uh, a couple of months ago and i noticed that it was like not doing that good and i hadn't really had that much time to be paying attention to the garden so milpa system obviously being the the corn bean squash the sort of famous mayan combination of plants that work in symbiosis together but you know i noticed they weren't doing that well even though we put in like some compost but remember we're like this is our first year in the garden and 
you know, we're also building a house and putting in all of our other systems. So the garden was kind of like looking a little sad. So I started to get, um, so I started to get going on doing some like bio ferments and really like trying to make the soil alive because we've got our big animal system now. We got our chickens in. We got like uh, 10 criollo or heirloom chickens and about 55 uh, laying hens. Uh, so we had to think of a system for feeding them. Uh, and this is all, you know, this is all related to fertility, but I had to put, think of a system for feeding them. So one of the things we started doing was fermenting uh, corn in our whey. So anyone out there who has either goats and or chickens, I'd really love some feedback on this one because essentially my idea is that if I can cut down the need for soy-based concentrates by giving our animals... Um, locally or easy to easy to source things so a big part of their diet comes from like there's a local ashram down the road from us and we give them we started taking their food scraps from them so we give them that in the morning but then with that we mix in a couple of handfuls of corn that's been fermented in our whey so we take our whey which is a byproduct from the cheese that we make with the milk from the goats um and we ferment the corn in that and then we mix the whey in with the rest of the food and we give it to them and they, they've they been lapping it up, you know, and then we give them a little concentrate to supplement their, their feed in the evening. But that that whole system, that whole that whole chicken system, they're kind of, it's a composting chicken system. I'd really recommend anyone who doesn't know that what that is to look it up and watch Shad's video on YouTube. Um, so to go in along with that, we started to brew microorganisms, which we've been like blasting in there with water and kind of like turning, picking up the ground underneath there. We built our chicken house adjacent to our goat house. We have this kind of herbivore follow is followed by omnivore sort of setup going on where the chickens kind of go in and clean it, clean it out. And then we started doing these bioferments, uh, biofermented fertilizers, where with the sort of aim of remineralizing our soils. We're going to put a put a, a video on it. The good news is the garden has responded amazingly with just like a couple of weeks of doing this stuff. Um, so. You know, I'd be happy to talk more about these recipes, but I don't want to like overload people. But we also set up, a, <laughs> yeah, we did a lot with to do with fertility. We also built a, a a worm box with a rabbit hutch up over it. Also, going to put out a video on that uh, within the animal house. So within one house, we have two types of chickens, uh, rabbits, worms, and and goats. You know, within a few months, and it's trying to get them all to work symbiotically along with the microorganisms alongside of our garden. <laughs> That's like it's joining up those dots. Really, is what I've been doing lately. You know. And tell us a little bit how we dealed with what could have been a bit of a crisis um, as we had one of our chickens poached the other night. Tell us how we kind of addressed that problem. Oh, yeah, like a little ferret or something got into our chicken house. Um, you know, that that happens. It was like we have a house within a house, so essentially all we did was... <coughs> make sure that the there's a lot of places for the for the chickens to roost inside their little house and we also just like spent a whole day basically like really shoring it up and making sure that the animal if it got into the inner coop because here's the thing about animals i guess the big thing thing for me about our system is our chickens aren't necessarily free range they will have access to the outdoors for sure and there are different fields that we can open them out to but they are actually on top. The way we keep the ecosystem healthiest is not by rotating them necessarily. It's by continually putting more organic matter in there to keep them feeling like they're on top of fresh ground. So they're essentially on one kind of 10 meter area or a little bit more of just a huge compost pile. So they're essentially, that's full of the manure from the goat house, which is above their house. Um, all of our kitchen scrap, loads of hay, loads of leaf litter. Um, you know, it all just goes in there. It's sort of like the place kind of functions like a big, a big stomach, you know. Um, and then we're brewing the microorganisms so that what, what comes out of there is like, is, is fully finished and plant available. So we, we just shored up the house within the house, you know, and this is like, you don't need to be an engineer to figure this stuff out, you know, and, but it is dangerous. I will say this with chickens is if you notice one of them getting eaten, uh, what often, what I've seen happen various times is like, you notice one dies and then the next day you come back and there's 10 dead because whatever got in there, like 
builds up courage or tells its friends or whatever you know so it's definitely one to nip in the bud yeah some of those reactionary things are hard to plan for i mean a lot of the animal pen spaces kind of went up really quickly out of necessity because we were getting the animals quickly Um, and then you have to kind of solve problems afterwards as they arise because you built it a little bit slapdash the first time but as neil and i have talked about before this animal system is something of a prototype that we're testing out so we did it very cheaply the first time and we're going to be tweaking with the systems and kind of renovating the structure as we figure out the way that the animals want to interact with it in order to make as much fertile compost as possible and keep them happy, healthy, and well-fed and producing uh, milk, eggs, and meat in the case of rabbits. So to give you a little update now on the house and how that's going over the last couple of weeks, one of the main things that we've focused on is putting in the floors on the first level inside of the residence portion of the house. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with lime and the cycle that it goes through from being burned, then being slaked, and being transformed into two different states of hydraulic lime and um, then slaked into... uh, Man, I always forget the scientific names for these things as they get down in different stages. But basically, you have orcalsa, which is uh, the dry powdered lime here in uh, in Guatemala, and lime putty, which stays wet, and then you can use it in mortars and plasters. So we use that in place of cement to lay what are called lajas or slate tiles down on our floor. Now that seems like a luxury item in many places around the world, but we're fortunate enough that just over the hill in a different valley, These slate tiles come straight out of the mountainside and they're very affordable as a result and make for a really beautiful aesthetic floor with kind of a undulating feeling of of natural stone. And so most people install those with cement, which obviously works just fine, but sticking with our natural building theme and the fact that we haven't yet used any cement anywhere on the house, we decided to make our mortar out of pure lime. So the process takes a little bit longer. We actually slaked lime ourselves, which is when you add water to it and it goes through a chemical process, turning back into limestone slowly as it reabsorbs carbon dioxide after the um, the burning process. I mean, that might be a little bit more dense of science than most people need, but if you ever are interested, look up the Lime Cycle online and there's great animations and resources um, to figure out how it interacts at different stages of mixing. So it takes longer to make a good mix. We kept mixing and hydrating the lime for almost a week before we formed it into putty and put it down as the base for our floors. And then similarly, it takes a long time to dry. So my floor was finished being installed about five days ago and it the the mortar still is a little bit pliable it's a little bit plastic like you can press a thumbprint in it if you put in a little bit of pressure so the longer curing process is a little bit of a deterrent for people if they're trying to move in quickly but we're trying to take our time and use the best materials possible Uh, so that is the biggest thing that's changed in the house we've made a couple of design considerations and changes as well but we're almost ready to start moving on to the finish work so if anybody's interested in seeing the progress of the farm and the house uh, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook where we're regularly posting pictures of what we're developing here on the farm and projects that we do for clients Now, before I get too far into uh, just our own projects, Tim has been sitting here patiently uh, while we catch everybody up. So, Tim, can you start us off by introducing yourself to our audience, telling us a little bit about your background, and then we can start to talk about the coffee industry here in Guatemala. Hi, everybody. Yes, my name is Tim. I'm uh, from Northern Europe, um, German-Danish border to be precise. Um, ended up here in Guatemala about like eight years ago. Um, put down roots here after traveling the world for a few years. Um, and uh, I needed something to, to do, uh, an income. So uh, in, in the end, I stumbled upon the fact that the coffee grown here was only shipped out and not processed um, here in, our, in the village where I live. Um, and uh, so the farmers would hardly make a living. And uh, the people living here would not even be able to drink the coffee grown here. Um, that's how I got to coffee and how I got here to Guatemala as it would extend the, the, the time we have here. 
So tell everybody about your business model. How long have you been roasting coffee and what is the social impact that you're hoping to have with your business? Well, coffee, of course, being from Northern Europe, always had a fascination. We just, uh, it's, it's a, there's a culture of coffee drinking um, up there where I grew up. Um, then when I bought land here, I found coffee growing on the land. And, uh, and of course, I was interested in processing my own coffee um, and to, to be able to drink it. And over that, I, I learned how this is all done and how coffee is being grown and, and how the locals deal with it. And um, so I started that eight years ago. Um, and in the beginning, I would uh, have to carry the coffee, the fresh harvest of coffee to a neighbor like a quarter mile away to have it pulped there, which is taking the outer flesh, the skin off, and then carry it back up the hill to the place to process it there and then carry it to another village to have it husked and, and roasted. And the outcome was never satisfactory to the way other people dealt with, with my product. And uh, so I decided to to go independent and, and make it a thing. It was meant to be a hobby in the beginning, more like, you know, maybe I'll be processing roasting coffee once or twice a week and then look for a real job. And uh, the demand became so high that I... Um, invested in, in better equipment and uh, refined the methods and now we're processing in, in an artisanal professional way yeah it's cool um, I feel like a lot of people maybe don't understand uh, the implications of because coffee growing sort of with a lot of the permaculture community here or at least um, yeah I'd say like quite a lot of people who have who are into these kinds of things like food sovereignty and 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 using local plants maybe don't see what a what a useful crop coffee is because even though it's not native and it's not food it it it's a shade tolerant crop it can be sort of incorporated into kind of a a, a diverse agroforestry system you know i just wonder if you had any thoughts on on that so coffee first of all originates in east africa um area known as ethiopia today um, and it was taken here to Guatemala by German settlers who came here to Central America to specifically to grow coffee because the climate here, which is uh, tropical highlands, is the same as, as in um, where coffee originates from. So the, the natural circumstances, the climate and the altitude um, are perfect for coffee growing. These are Arabica strains we're talking about here. So um, Arabica strains here, as in its origin, are grown in the mountains, as Neil said, in the shade, which means under other trees. Um, and um, so, and then here at the lake where we live, the, the locals um, started growing coffee maybe like also like 50 or 80 years ago as a cash crop. Um, and and uh, so here the Mayan farmers, unfortunately, traditionally, they do use pretty much what we would call slash and burn um, for their corn growing. Um, and also with the with the coffee, they would, you know, deforest partly. Our our aim now with the knowledge that we have and permaculture knowledge is, is to get the coffee growing that exists here and, and make it more sustainable because the coffee does have the potential. Um, there has been recently, there's been a um, really bad plague, the coffee rust, that destroyed pretty much a quarter, if not half, of, of Guatemalan coffee crops. Um, it's been really bad. And because it's a global commodity, even though if the Guatemalan farmers have a bad crop, um, as long as Brazil and Vietnam and other big producers pump out huge amounts, the global coffee price remains the same. So, um, in a, in a, usually on a free market, you know, if a farmer has a bad crop, then um, the price would go up because there is... Yeah, yeah like that's part of... Um I guess that's part of the, the strange thing about the way global commodities work, right? It's like the suddenly how long like 15 years ago the sort of NGOs start to promote coffee growing in Vietnam and the, you know like 10 years later they become one of the biggest coffee producers in the world and this has like huge implications that affect Guatemalan farmers on the other side of the world and it's like this it can look like quite a strange system at times right exactly so trying to rescue coffee growing um, here 
means means numerous things. Um, first of all, there needs to be initiative for the farmers, of course, to grow it again. It it needs to like they need to be able to make a living of it. Um, at times, the yeah, because that's the thing. I mean, sometimes it's literally not worth your while to harvest your coffee right now, right? Yeah, there are times when the prices are so low that you know picking some people don't even pick their coffee anymore because here it's all done by hand. There is no machines involved. It's all on on steep mountainsides. A lot of the coffee fields, the farmers have to walk half an hour, hour up to two hours up into the mountains, pick it, bring it back on foot, you know, and then they make like really a couple dollars like the whole day. That's obviously not worth it. Um, so since there is a speciality coffee market, you can actually achieve higher prices for your coffee if you know how to grow it. Um, here also the traditional farmers, they have little education and little knowledge when it comes to soil chemistry and and things like that. And uh, because here chemical fertilizers, they're actually being given away for free here during election times, sponsored um, by some Northern American country, I believe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's keep politics out of this. <laughs> it is a political thing, actually. So... Um, you know, they they don't quite understand what's so bad. You know, if you put chemical fertilizer on it and you have twice the crop, they don't see how that can be a bad thing first. Um, only after 30 years when all the soils are depleted, obviously, you know, the problems become apparent and things like the coffee rust come in because the soils are not healthy. So it really takes a complete rebuilding at this point. Um, because I buy directly from the farmers, it's direct trade. Uh, from small producers that really have a tenth of an acre, some maybe half of an acre. Um, that's about the size of the um, fields that the private p farmers here have, um, the little plots. And it's from those people we buy directly. And, uh, you know, we commit, of course, to a fair trade system. We actually pay 20% more than they would get on the street. Um, and we guarantee a minimum price. So if it's like completely like the global market price is completely collapsed, we still guarantee a certain minimal price and uh, we then process the coffee and uh, sell it really only locally. Uh, we don't export. Uh, we're not looking into export. We're trying to keep the coffee that is grown here. Um, and through that direct trade system and cutting out a bunch of middlemen and whoever else is, is making money in the coffee market on the global market, they are basically all left outside. And so we can pay more and still achieve like a competitive, um, you know, be able to, to sell for a competitive price on the local market here. Which, you know, for me living around here, that that's great. And it's it's better than it might appear at first glance because if those if people start abandoning their coffee and it starts switching over to, um, or they start looking for other cash crops, you know, the types of things people are planting are corn, you know, maybe beans, chickpeas, annual basic grains that denude, that denude the slopes that where the loss of soil is enormous. And, you know, coffee has, because it's shade tolerant and because you can grow all these nice, um, you know, native trees like like heirloom avocados, like ice cream bean, uh, jocotes, um, you know, all these lovely big tall trees that'll last for 50, 60 years and shed loads of leaves. Um, you know, you create habitat for animals, you keep your soil in place. It's If it's done properly, I think it can be actually having a, a shade tolerant cash crop in your food forest is actually pretty great, you know. So I guess this leads me to the next question is how do you see some vital steps uh, taken to improve the industry as it currently is into one that is sustainable? Well, first, because I kind of like stumbled upon this whole thing without studying before, I myself need to, you know, learn what it takes actually to produce a high quality coffee, how to grow it, um, that it becomes a high quality coffee, how to process it, how to roast it in the end. And then there is a lot of marketing to it. Um, so we, we did the first steps. Um, we, we established a business that was making a name for itself. Um, and uh, from there on, we need to up 
upgrade and, and find the market also of people that are actually interested in high-end coffee and are interested in or willing to, to pay for it as well. Um, for example, you have the coffee growers in Kona in Hawaii. Um, Kona is a region in Hawaii and only the coffee grown in that region can be marketed as Kona coffee. There's a coffee growers association there. And uh, while we achieve about $5 a pound of roasted coffee on the market, um, they achieve 50 um, is it 10 times better than ours? Eh, I'm not so sure. <laughs> For sure, twice is good still because we're still learning. Yours is good, man. We're drinking it right now. It's good coffee. There's no way it's 10 times better. Exactly. So the rest is marketing. Um, so it's it's all about getting people together. It's about understanding the potential and then the, the growing methods. Um, so I know that in Kona, of course, they have they have watering systems. So in, in a drought, they actually have drip systems to give the coffee plants a, a, the sufficient amount of, of water to keep the quality. While here, where we have a drought up in the mountains, you know, well, then the coffee isn't that good that year. And that's that. Um, so you need to think of an, on, along those lines. Uh, and then um, teaching, of course, permaculture and organic growing methods. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, I think these, like, you know, I'm only fooling around with it now, but partly what got me into it was reading up I'd been doing on the rust and what causes it, and exactly like you're talking about, these 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 uh, alkali or these um, acidification of soils and loss of microbial life and sort of, like, leaching and demineralization uh, because when the pH of the soil changes, a bunch of the minerals and nutrients become unavailable, so... You know, these bioferments that I'm doing, I learned about them from a Colombian guy called Jairo Restrepo, and they're used in a lot of things. They're great for your garden as well. Um, but, you know, the research on them uh, is that with the coffee rust, they're like a very effective um, um, control against against the rust. So, you know, like, I think it's going to take, <laughs> I think it's going to take a lot of like, our own experimentation being people who are from this part of the world actually because it's not really like there's just a a product out there that you, you can get easily and apply to to this thing you know these are like you know different people wherever they are need to find their own little mixtures and composts and and uh, insumos you know inputs that they can add that are like organic and actually improve their soil year on year instead of like leaving it stripped like the like the chemicals do right yeah, it's it's about educating and building trust. I mean, we're in a part of a world where uh, we have a history of 500 years of colonization, of exploitation. And, uh, you know, the, the Spaniards came here 500 years ago to um, bring righteousness over the indigenous and the missionaries came to bring, you know, the right faith. And now come these smelly permaculture guys uh, bringing you know telling them try to tell the farmers how to grow their corn and their coffee and they're kind of not very receptive to that at this point um, so this is actually a big thing to work on is, is to build this trust and uh, since we are all guys who ourselves get our hands dirty that's the first step to to gain respect we're not just here in suit and ties and giving lectures but we're actually doing it ourselves um and and then showing that it's how it works and i know that the the neighbors they walk into their coffee fields and they walk past my little coffee patch and they see it's full of coffee it's green it's lush it's healthy and they're like oh what are you doing you know and and this is how you start yeah and what are you doing actually well, it's it's the Lahu Neil just described it. I'm, um, I took I took over about a half an acre of land, and uh, I will keep some of that. Some, of course, I build a house on and and my coffee roastery, um, and uh, the production side, and the rest I will keep. Some of it I put vegetable permaculture gardens in, working on getting chickens in, and some of it I will uh, turn into a little food forest. Um, keeping some of the old strains alive because um, it's interesting to keep some of those despite them being affected on the rust. If you treat the soil and the plants uh, good enough, they, they can combat the rust, um, the fungus. And uh, putting in new strains that are uh, resistant. Um, I put in the first 25 um, trees this year of uh, um, rust-resistant coffee. Let's see how that goes. It's an experiment. And then planting the food forest around. There is a um, shade tree here called Cushin, um, which only um, gives shade and the right amount of shade. It's it's kind of like a broad tree that doesn't make a dense shade because you don't want it to be too shaded, the coffee, kind of like a 
40 to 60 percent shade is, is kind of ideal yeah it's amazing to see how those two in particular the coffee and the cushion just live in like real harmony with each other huh and it's worth noting for you folks at home the cushion is the ice cream bean or the inga it's commonly used in a technique called inga ali cropping because uh you can you know it's one technique that they talk about being really good to use in the tropics and subtropics because these things produce a ton of mulch you can pollard them right back and they'll just grow back and they fix tons and tons of nitrogen into the soil so you know like planting rows of these things and then chopping them back for mulch so that they let go of their nitrogen and they're they actually are pretty amazing trees and have all kinds of applications but they also go really really well with just coffee yeah, the, the symbiosis between the cochin and, and the coffee is specifically known. There's another tree that seeded itself actually in my coffee and uh, a lot of coffee farmers use it as a shade tree. I don't know the local name for it at the moment, but it, it just grows really fast. Um, I planted a bunch of avocado trees. Um, there's the local fruit here, the um, rocote, uh, which I, I have a couple of those old ones also standing around the coffee. Um, and that's also a cash crop, actually. So it's, I want to mix it up and um, have some, some native fruit trees. Um, the mispelos here, there's a native guava. Um, and, you know, just as much as diversity as possible, of course, and having some benefits of like having avocados afterwards. Um, and But keeping in mind that, you know, you're not trying to take get too much out of it, you know, and have those cochin shade trees that take up a bunch of space, but they're really improving everything around them. I mean, another big yield for the locals actually is firewood. Um, you know, if 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 I think most local people here, if they can have a field that, as you say, gives them a harvest of avocados and maybe one or one or two other fruit crops that they can sell, coffee that's actually good quality where the value gets added locally and they don't get ripped off, and firewood. You know, these things, these trees grow really fast, and and all of the even the branches that fall off the trees. That's a great bonus to the to the local people to have those systems kind of well run and close by, I think. Yeah, of course, I have the benefit now of having lots and lots of um, organic uh, matter because of the coffee processing. There's first of all the pulp that uh, when I get the coffee, I do offer to all the farmers who sell me their coffee that they can take their pulp home and then bring it back to the fields. So far, they do not do that yet. Um, so I compost it. I have a earthworm casting production going and uh, I turn it back into soil, put it in my veg garden, put it back to the coffees. Um, that or, that Those huge amounts of organic fertilizer is, of course, a blessing. Yeah, and it's, I think, of all the organic byproducts I've seen, the worms are they love it. These guys go crazy. I haven't found anything that's good because it's actually like not that heavy on nitrogen. It's I think it's about 20 to 1 if I'm right, if anyone's into composting. So it really doesn't need much dry material and worms just multiply like crazy in the stuff and it, it's such a good ingredient to have. And then the other thing, you are, there's two byproducts to coffee. The, the shell, you have it thrown all over your, your food forest. That's really nice. Exactly, it's the it's the husk um, that is. So you have coffee has numerous layers. It's first is the pulp, um, the the fruit skin, so to say, which you can eat also. Um, some people actually interesting try to use this fruit skin um, to produce stuff from like they make. Some people make flour from it. They dry it, make flour. Um, some um, make superfood drinks from it. Um, and uh, I think it's controversial because it's it's great. Of course, the first. It, first glance that you use everything that comes with the coffee on the other hand living in between coffee fields i know how important it is to compost the fruit and put it back into the coffee because else how do you fertilize you need to substitute it then with other fertilizers which here would be chemicals so it, it keeping it in the cycle i think is way more beneficial than trying to market it so just before we get too far down the rabbit hole with all of the different side processes of coffee, could you spell it out for our listeners kind of the entire life cycle and how you process it to get a finished pro uh, product? Because I know before I came here to Guatemala, I didn't realize just how many steps they were in the process of planting, harvesting, uh, processing and final product down to packaging and even certain business considerations. 
So now we're talking about here shade-grown, hand-picked uh, Highland coffee, as opposed to industrial, industrial-produced coffee, um, which in your typical supermarket, uh, Vietnamese, Brazilian coffee, and these countries also produce high-end coffees, but the industrial-produced coffee is grown in lowlands, big fields, machine-harvested, machine-produced. I mean, I, I don't know, I wouldn't even look at that kind of stuff. <laughs> here, everything is grown in the mountains, as mentioned before, so that you can't even access it with machines. Um, so growing after the coffee of course is ripe um the pickers actually go through every plot about four or five times during one harvest season because not all the beans are ripe at the same time um so this means the pickers um they they need to choose when they pick to only pick the nice ripe beans and this is where it becomes important that you pay a fair wage because they get paid of course by weight yeah so if they the more they pick the more they earn um, but uh, I don't accept coffee that has too many unripe beans in it, and for that I pay fairly, and I hope that it gets kicked down to the pickers then. So um, the first and most important, after you know it's grown properly in a, in a good way, is that the picker does a good job. Um, then we... Um, we do a washed coffee. So there are, there are numerous ways of processing coffee and this is all getting maybe a little too technical at this point. Um, but uh, so we pulp the coffee, which means we take the fruit skin off. Um, then we ferment. We ferment the coffee about 14 hours. Um, this uh, natural bacteria is eating an outside mucus layer and um, you do start changing the molecule structure of the seed. Coffee is a seed, yeah, uh, basically. So it makes the sugars later more available if you ferment it in the right way. You don't want to over-ferment, um, but it does something for the taste if you do a good and proper fermentation. After that, the coffee is being washed. Um, the washing water that comes off the coffee um, at that point is actually something that Neil and Oliver will work on greatly this year of uh, turning this what we call um, honey water uh, turning that into a compost tea and make it uh, available again um, to, to the farming here around because it's highly potential of course um, so after the washing it's being dried out on a patio in the sun takes about 7 to 8 days till it's dry um, then that dry coffee has, as mentioned before, another layer, the, the husk, a parchment, um, that needs to be taken off. It's a brittle, dry skin that is there uh, around the coffee seed. Um, that is we use for mulching afterwards. Um, you couldn't even use it in a compost toilet. It doesn't absorb any moisture. It's like really brittle. Um, and uh, then you have the, the green seed, which needs to be hand-sorted. Still take bits and pieces out. Um, leftover husk, uh, broken pieces, rotten coffee. It's an, it's a natural product. So obviously there's defects. So you try to take it out. And then the quality of the coffee depends much on how fine you sort it. Um, and after that, we can roast it. Um, roasting means basically just heating it up. Uh, when you heat up organic matter, like uh, no matter if it's coffee or steak, you get a browning, uh, which is the Malnyard reaction. Uh, chemically speaking, um, and uh, coffee is a seed, so there's a high content of carb car carbohydrates, sugars, basically. Um, so if you heat it up, caramelizes, makes it brown. Um, secrets of roasting, it's, it's all about how fast you heat up those beans and in what way um, if you heat them too fast it doesn't taste good if you heat them too slow it doesn't taste good so this roasting is really an art form of knowing your equipment knowing your seeds knowing your coffee and to get the most flavors out of it and you can play with that you know you can you can the so-called roast profile which if you put it on a diagram the heat curve you know if you adjust that in certain ways you get different flavors out of it and um, that's then the, the whole profession and the fascination of roasting i welcome anybody who comes to guatemala come and witness it it's great fun all right let's segue a little bit now to how the two of us in our organizations are setting up to work together in the upcoming harvest season for coffee uh, could you explain a little bit how you're looking to expand and how you see our role in helping out the coffee producers in our side of the valley so because Neil and Oliver are having this little permaculture farm here, they're looking for natural fertilizers, um, uh, organic matter. So because coffee production has the pulp and uh, has, as I described before, this uh, washing water, um, it, that would be greatly beneficial to their little farm here. And I would like to source coffee from this valley here uh, for numerous reasons. And so we're going to put in a little miniature processing plant here on the farm. 
and uh, then I will roast and, and market the coffee um, so it will help the local farmers they will get paid better it will help the farm here because they will have the fertilizers um, it helps me because I can diversify a little bit more and um, and at the same time these guys will help me get a grip on um, improving my uh, processing the the organic matter from the the coffee specifically the coffee water the washing water the thing with the coffee washing water is it's um, if if it's con it's concentrated it's very concentrated and can be contagious um, we live here at Lago Atitlan in a very sensible ecosystem the lake that we live at is is the word endemic. Um, there's no river going out. Everything that goes in, it's in. It's like a kettle. It's like a big bowl. So you do not want to, you know, have those wash waters go into that lake because it would lead to over fertilization of that lake. Um, so it it is it is mandatory also because it is a nature protected area. It is mandatory that these. Um, um, byproducts of coffee are being treated rightly and we're working together here with the environmental um, government environmental agency um, and ministry and, and they come actually and monitor what we do and we we want to prove to them that as small producers uh, we can take these, these um, highly concentrated fertilizers that can be actually harmful to the environment that we can turn them into something positive. Um, and that's that's something really fascinating, and they're actually willing to work with us. Which is a it's a fantastic like uh, challenge essentially for a kind of permaculture designer here is to you know invert that problem and turn it in turn all those uh, all that potential matter out of place into uh, into a resource. But you know there's a little bit there's a little bit more to it. Uh, it's great for me in one sense because it's like you're looking at all these people during the year walk past your farm with uh, sacks of coffee pulp or co like coffee beans on their head and it's like unpulped and everything and they send it to a town that's 10 or 15 miles away where they depulp it and then all that pulp sits there in big concrete vats not doing anything and you know you're like wow I'd love to have that but <laughs> you know it's the minute you you have it you're you got to do something with it so you want to talk about what we're planning on doing yeah so it's important to note at this point that we don't have all of the details worked out we have kind of a preliminary design for this small processing facility that tim was just mentioning um, the challenge now is to figure out how to process the byproducts in a way that turns them into uh, an ecologically useful product so like Tim was mentioning the honey water has a ton of potential to be worked into a very potent compost tea, essentially. And we're looking at different ways of either aerating it through a small pump, um, adding other ingredients to increase its potency um, without making it um, kind of a biohazard or retaining any potential of pathogens or bad bacteria. And then, of course, the pulp that he mentioned as well. Uh, that would probably be a lot easier for us to process because we have this four-animal kind of compost factory system that we're still fine-tuning. Um, as Neil mentioned before, uh, the, the worms love it, the chickens love it. I'm sure we can find a way of passing it through them, turning it into really rich material, and even using it to cut down on some of our own feed inputs that uh, are coming from outside. Yeah, I mean, also the microorganisms is one of the reasons we've got big into brewing those is because they want really just a food source. It's just like doing any other ferment. So one of the things I'm really hoping to sort of engineer, uh, you know, uh, so any any volunteer engineers out there that feel like coming and helping us with this, they're more than welcome. But, you know, some kind of system where those uh, um, honey waters go down into a to go through a, a, a fermentation process. Uh, I think that would be like the optimal thing and then essentially work their way downhill through our property, you know. And if any of you out there find this topic really interesting, definitely follow our progress here on the podcast and on our social media outlets because as soon as I have kind of a finished design for this processing facility, which we are kind of analyzing Tim's own systems, uh, scaling it to the application on our small farm and trying to troubleshoot some of the things uh, that are in his processing facility, which he thinks can be optimized or improved upon. So as soon as we have a final design for this, um, I'll be sure to publish it and take uh, feedback from people online as well. 
also just like with the feeding way to goats thing i would be delighted for any suggestions feedback comments with anyone who's had experience in sort of similar things because you know just like with a lot of these things we're we're making it up as we go along quite honestly yeah it's true so the broader we can cast a net to bring in more information and expertise we would love your feedback um but that being said, Tim also has some fantastic experience over the years that he's been here for. And it's really fun to see this as a collaborative possibility between our two companies and uh, have an environmental and economic uh, sort of positive impact on the communities where we live. Uh, Tim, are there any other things that you would like to talk about, about how uh, moving forward with coffee production within these valleys in the context that you mentioned, the integration between coffee and agroforestry systems can be a way forward to increase the economic benefits and the environmental impact for small-scale producers. Well, all in all, it's it, this country is is changing rapidly. Um, from I think being like seventy to eighty percent people employed in agriculture, um, that number is obviously going down. There's more and more people moving to the cities. It's it's huge changes here culturally. Um, Guatemala is kind of like catching up to the twenty first century. While our towns here twenty five years ago had no electricity, no road access, none of that. People would you know live very simple rural life here and uh, now you see flat screen TVs and cars and Wi-Fi and everything uh, you know without judging that's just the way things go and and so things are changing rapidly and the young generation is of course less and less interested in farming um, which I think has the potential also of the ones that want to stick to it um, and are interested in it to try new things and and so we it's really it's pioneering it's everything is new here Um and uh, so it's it's all about working together w with the new generation and trying to implant complete new things that are adjusted to the new circumstances around everybody here. I think one of the things, a friend of mine said this to me a couple of months ago and it stuck with me, like the future of, of farming for the small guy is artisanal farming, right? We sort of know this. Um, you know, big coffee, big corn, big sugar, none of that's not going anywhere and you can't hope to compete uh, on that international market unless you sort of have a a product that not only is higher quality but also kind of has a story behind it you know so you know for every like nice artisanal beer really top end artisanal beer there should be like a, an, a, a, an organic hops farm behind it you know and it's it's like sort of the same with, with coffee and I think a little bit I, I see interesting synergy between um you know the project we're doing which is uh with that i'm doing with shad and Antitan organics which has to do with the community uh reforestation project that we're doing which essentially what we're what we're focusing on is avocado production uh, because there's all these amazing heirloom varieties of avocado from sununa from right here that are like totally unique different colored ones big juicy ones um, and so we're grafting hundreds of those varieties right now and our volunteer groups that are starting to come in to learn about agroforestry, we're teaching them about kind of permaculture techniques through bringing them to local people's land and, you know, planting small food forests with avocado as the main crop, but with a bunch of support plants. And in a lot of these instances, this was the case in our pilot project, that system went in above um, a coffee plantation. You know, so I think these and, and we also do like, you know, dry stack walls uh, and other soil and water conservation techniques. So all these things we know can help a lot in the in the production of coffee as an understory crop in those systems as well. Huh? Yeah, and of course, with with all idealism, um, the farmers around us um, are um, and they're poor. You know, people are poor here, and um, so cash crops are needed. And and um, our, of course, job it is to to help the local farmers. You know, benefit from the cash crops 
um, but with without you know destroying the environment, without the slash and burn, and without the chemical fertilizers, and and to make people understand that if they want the following generations to benefit from from the farming, um, they can't just you know kill the kill the soil. Um, and uh, this is where we come in is where we can actually bring some positive knowledge, and and we need to keep in mind, yeah, they need to make a living. So coffee is actually a great connection there, um, you know, because if done right, it is it is a great cash crop. And, and it can be beneficial in a diverse um, agroforest. Marvelous. I think that's a good note to wrap it up here on. Now, before we go, Tim, could you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you, learn more about your organization and uh, your impact here in the community? Yeah, of course, you can reach us through the internet. We have a Facebook page. Our company is called Shangri-La Atitlan. Um, like the, the Shangri-La, the paradise one, um, Shangri-La Atitlan. That's on Facebook, shangri-la-atitlan.com is our webpage, which is kind of under struct- construction. There's just a couple of coffee tour flyers on it right now. Um, really best way to understand what's going on here, come by, come see us. Uh, we're easy to find. If you come to San Marcos, you ask for coffee, Tim, everybody will point you the way. And uh, Neil, how can people learn more about the agroforestry models and the uh, preservation of Criollo heirloom avocados here in Sununa? Well, the answer to all of these, how can you find out more, is just listen to Oliver's podcast. Um, <laughs> you know, just so happens there's a podcast on exactly this topic. I think it was the last roundtable we did where we kind of talk about it at length. Or the actual best way, uh, apart from the podcast, is to just come see us. Check us out. Ask for coffee, Tim first, and then ask Tim where uh, Neil is. You know, it'll it'll work. <laughs> yeah, we're developing a, a funny <laughs> reputation in each of our communities as being the uh, crazy alternative farmers and coffee roasters. It's it's a fun group of friends that we're building here. And uh, I just want to say thank you so much for your time, Tim. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and it's always fun to see you here on the farm, Neil. It's always good uh, to sit down with you, as if we didn't do this every single night. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we just curse less when we do it on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all so much for tuning in. And of course, you can find out more about our projects and our community efforts here at AbundantEdge.com, as well as uh, links to find Tim's organization as well in the links in the show notes for this episode. So until next month, uh, we'll see you on the Regenerative Roundtable. Cheers. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.